Welcome to Bookish Bethel. I am Anne Marie Koistra in the History Department, and I am joined by Carrie Peffley in the Philosophy Department. This week we have Eric Leafblad, and he is in the Bible and Theological Studies Department. And we are going to discuss Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Discipleship. So thanks for joining us. We came into the recording with Carrie being pretty fired up about um, Bonhoeffer. And we've got Eric here with us to talk about Bonhoeffer. Um, I don't know. What should we start with first? Well, just... I mean, can can you, Eric, for for our readers or for our listeners, rather, who haven't ever read The Cost of Discipleship, give us a little synopsis of what the students are reading right now. Yeah. So discipleship, and I really think it should be considered like I really think you uh, we need to retitle it. That is actually the title It's just discipleship Mm -hmm. somewhere in the American publishing industry. It got turned into the cost cost of discipleship. And the reason and, and it's the reason that's actually important is there's actually a couple of places in discipleship where he uses the phrase the cost of discipleship, but he uses it um, kind of pejoratively. Mm-hmm. Like like it's not um, it's it, it's it becomes kind of like the cost of our discipleship in the German context is the the loss of the church or the loss of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like, so it, it, it actually isn't this about, I mean, it is about sort of like this strenuous quest to hold on to Jesus, but um, he's, he's using it. He uses that particular phrase, which a lot of kind of American evangelicals picked up on, but he uses it more as a shot at the German context. Um, he uses it both ways, but, Mm-hmm. Uh, his first usage of it is actually in chapter one, I think, chapter one or chapter two, and he uses it as an indictment. Not not that they haven't considered the cost, but that the cost of their disciple their discipleship has been too cheap. Right. Um. So. Uh. Anyway. So, what is it about? Um. It is. Uh, as with everything that Bonhoeffer writes, he is immensely interested in Jesus. And uh, I often joke, like, if you're ever in a theology class or having a theology discussion and the person in charge asks a question and you don't know really what the answer to that question is, the Sunday school answer of Jesus is typically right. Um, and uh, in discipleship, he's um, Dietrich's trying to work out what what is the distinction between you uh, know in, in a real way it's it's a it's a really Lutheran text but set in a kind of reformed key which is really interesting um, because he's trying to work out the relationship between law and gospel very much so that's why he gets into notions of like obedience and belief. Um, but he's doing it in a kind of, oh man, my, I hope no Lutheran Bonhoeffer folks listen to this, but he's doing it in a very reformed way. So um, he's following Bart mm-hmm. more than he is Luther. 
in that he's essentially saying that prior to any sort of obedience, any sort of belief, any strenuous human effort that you might want to put forth, you have to recognize that grace is not an idea. It's not a doctrine. It's not a, a, an ideology. It is the person of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. Um, it's the incarnate God in the human person, Jesus. That's a really reformed thing. Because um, the Lutheran way of thinking of law gospel is you preach the law and the law kills you so that the gospel can make you alive. Mm-hmm. Bonhoeffer does the reformed thing because he likes Barth um, and says, no, God calls you and now you respond. So law is conditioned by grace rather than law as the precondition for the acceptance of grace or the, the arrival of grace, you might say. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, that was really technical um, and probably boring, but... Uh, but what Bonhoeffer's like main task, I think with discipleship is, um, like one of the ways to think about all of Bonhoeffer's work is oriented around two questions. The first is where is Jesus Christ to be found? That's why it's a, that's why it's really imperative that costly grace is not a system. It's not a doctrine. It is the person of Jesus. So he's immensely interested in answering that question first. Where is Jesus Christ to be found? Because the second question that orients almost everything Bonhoeffer writes is then to ask, well, what is the will of God? And so one has to first find the person of Jesus. And I don't mean that in like a hide and seek sort of thing, but in the sense of like one has to seek for the concrete presence of Christ in the world. This is why he's immensely interested in community from the time he's 21 and finishes his dissertation, because he believes that Christ is found in human relationships and human community. Um, So we have to look for solidarity, essentially, if we want to find Jesus. And then that's going to force the question of what do we do? That's that belief-obedience dialectic that he works so well. Um, Only the obedient believe because obedience is obedience to the real presence of Christ. And only those who believe can obey because only those who seek the actual living Christ could possibly understand what obedience looks like. Well, and I really appreciated that in reading Bonhoeffer, we're able to make so many connections to other things that we've read. So there's the obvious connection you mentioned to Luther, but I think too, there are some connections to Erasmus too, and how Erasmus expressed concern about Luther's ideas of grace and how that could potentially open the door to something that I think Bonhoeffer describes as the cheap grace that he also is concerned about. So there's a nice Erasmus connection there. Um, I think too, in that focus about obedience is manifest in what you do. That's actually a very Jonathan Edwards idea as well. How do you understand who the true believers are? So I really enjoy teaching parts of this text because of the connections it helps us to make with some of the other things that we've read. And there's again, a certain sort of comfort in the consistency of some of the messages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think even Augustine too, um, like Bonhoeffer's after a kind of implicated existence as a Christian. And, um, and in that, like um, it, you don't pick up on it in his more like dogmatic works like discipleship or, you know, act in being or sanctorum communio. But um, in like his letters and papers from prison, there's this, 
like all these things that he's writing to his best friend, Eberhard Betka, or to his fiance, Maria, um, or to his parents, like there's a real sort of um, ponderous soul in Bonhoeffer, which is not terribly German. Like most Germans would not, they're not going to reveal to you their, their psyche um, or even their, their fragility, the fragility of their psyche. Right. Um, but in like, just like Augustine was sort of like, if I'm going to do it, I need to be all in um, like, that's true of Bonhoeffer too. And I think understanding a bit of the biography and the person of Bonhoeffer allows you to read that into his more dogmatic works like discipleship and realize like, this is not abstract academic theology. This is pastoral theology. This mm -hmm. is cares deeply about the church and cares deeply about a church that has utterly lost its way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's one of the things that we were, that I was talking about with my students today in class, that this is not systematic theology. It is not philosophical theology. It is not abstract in any way. It's relational and pastoral. And I, I really do think it connects really nicely to Augustine, even in the role of, of, uh, of friendship um, that both of them see as so integral and then creating the ideal Christian community and then having them the right practices that come out of that. Yeah. Yeah. So like, he really envisioned the second part of discipleship as the, what became his book life together. So he calls for like a new monasticism in life together, but he already lays down the, the framework for that in the opening chapter of discipleship. Um, and so he, he saw these two texts, discipleship and life together as companion texts. And so life together is sort of a reflection on what he ends up doing with the Finkenwalde seminary, where he's training pastors, young pastors for the confessing church, which so people misunderstand what he's doing there. Um, because in the American imagination, Bonhoeffer's taking on all sorts of weird stuff. He's not actually training people who are necessary. Some of them are, are like in pastoral ministry, but most of them aren't. Um, most of them are younger um, folks who are going to be in ministry. Many of them are are soldiers or, or going to be soldiers. Um, and really, he's sort of planting. I, I want to be. I'm I'm overstating a little. There are some folks in there that are pastors, but he's really trying to plant the seeds through this kind of new monastic expression of theological training for a church on the other side of. Nazism. So it's really this kind of long, like a, a long obedience in the same direction to use a phrase from Nietzsche, actually, that Eugene Peterson picks up on. He's, he's orienting towards the future. Um, and it's really kind of sad that that never, never really happened. Um, and I think some of that has to do with like, when you lose the, the, the dynamo of the person of, of Bonhoeffer, it's hard to figure out like, who could have stepped into that. So in some mm -hmm. sense, it was sort of built on his, maybe just the energy of his person. But um, I think I, st I often still have these like dreams of like, what would it look like to just utterly reconceive of pastoral training around sort of this new monasticism that Bonhoeffer thinks is the future of Christianity in a post-Christian world. Hmm. So I'm interested, um, you know, I have a 
Bible theological studies professor, and I have a philosophy professor, and we've heard a little bit from the, the Bible guy about Bonhoeffer. What does a philosopher make of Bonhoeffer, given that he is so kind of on the streets pragmatic? What do you do with him, Carrie? I mean, <laughs> that's a good question. I do tend to like treatises um, <laughs> and the overly obtuse and theoretical stuff. No, but I also think, um, you know, in the 20th century in general, I think a lot of philosophers move toward, I mean, one of the trends we're going to see in 20th century philosophy is this move toward pragmatism as well, that philosophers have been overly focused on these very esoteric questions of metaphysics instead of actually being concerned with what we should be concerned with, and that is ethics. Um, and, and so I like the fact that Bonhoeffer is doing not obtuse systematic theology and not so concerned with these various doctrines and getting that orthodoxy nailed down, um, but rather thinking about ethics, about this sort of pragmatic focus. So I think I've grown to like it more. I am also a person who started out focusing on metaphysics, like obscure Aristotelian metaphysics, and now fully find myself doing much more pragmatic ethics, like in my own life. Mm -hmm. So I think Bonhoeffer fits much better with me now than he would have 20 years ago when I was interested in those esoteric questions. <laughs> so fantastic. Well, and I think in my class, because I'm the historian here, we talked a lot about the context in which Bonhoeffer is writing and how he is saying these things that maybe when we read him in 2020 seem perhaps less daring, but the kinds of things that he's saying in the context of the rise of Nazism and Hitler um, on the eve and during World War II are audacious. Mm -hmm. And so um, one of my groups today was working through the Beatitudes. And so uh, they were raising this idea that for Bonhoeffer, and I'll just quote a little bit. Um, he talks about how the peacemakers are to be blessed. And he says um, that Christ's kingdom is a realm of peace. And those in Christ's community greet each other with a greeting of peace. They renounce self-assertion and are silent in the face of hatred and injustice, that is how they overcome evil with good. And while we are not in the midst of World War II, we are in the midst of an election. And my students definitely found those kinds of words to be very poignant mm -hmm. in the context of the election. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as we were talking about both um, Bonhoeffer and the, the Barman Declaration, um, I, I was also struck by the audacity of what he was saying, but also how incredibly relevant it is right now as the, the, the German evangelicals call out the false doctrine, uh, the false doctrines of this church that was associating itself with nationalism as opposed to with Christ. Um, mm -hmm. Seems really, really important right now. Eric, do you want to say something about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think I'll, I think I'll say it this way. Um, one of the interesting things about German theology is that it, it is very dogmatic. It's very focused on like creeds and confessions. And so because of that, it can be misread as not addressing 
the things of the time, right? And so one of the one of the critiques of the confessing church is that they didn't really say anything about the Jews. And I think there's a legitimate critique to be made there. And yet at the same time, um, I think one of the misunderstandings is that because they're focused on creeds and confessions, that they're not also at the same time speaking about what's happening right now. Um, and like, I, I don't think any, I mean, Bonhoeffer was maybe a little bit more willing to name things directly. Uh, like he gives this radio address, for instance, called the, the younger people's conception of the Fuhrer. And it's a total critique of uh, Hitler um, more than a critique. It's an indictment of Hitler and it's an indictment of young people sort of falling in love with Hitler. And uh, his, he gets cut off because of it. Like the radio, they shut the radio off. So like he was a little more willing to maybe put some skin in the game, but I think um, it's sort of like, if you have ears to hear, it's all over these, mm-hmm. these fellows. Um, they really are not pulling any punches. Um and it's evident by the fact that they all end up in prison, concentration camps, or exiled. Like, mm-hmm. so people got it, right? I mean, I think there is something interesting to that for us to think through that sometimes um, what all of, the, I think what all the confessing church leaders did is that they didn't stand in from critical distance and make judgments about it wasn't about like, Oh, those German Christians, it was about us. And so they implicated themselves in it to such an extent that some of them gave their lives. Many of them gave up their reputations and positions in universities. Um, So they used their discourse. They used theology. They used pastor. They used charisma preaching to, still preach the gospel, but do it in a way that implicated them in the struggle for maybe what you'd say in the struggle for the German soul. Mm-hmm. So I, I find it really easy, easy and quite tempting as somebody who was reared in the evangelical church, teaches at a self-claimed evangelical university to simply be critical of evangelicals for their nationalism right now. Mm-hmm. The harder question is for me as a theologian is to articulate a theological position that implicates me mm-hmm. in, in calling evangelical nationalists, we might say, to repentance. Mm-hmm. Um, that's lobbying theological grenades is easy. Falling on theological grenade is the cost of discipleship. Ooh, I like that. It's like such a nice, succinct and pithy way to put it. I know. Well, and I think too, it's, it's a challenging book to read in its pragmatism because for Bonhoeffer, it is that simple. When Jesus calls, you obey. Mm -hmm. And that seems overwhelming, understandably. But I think too, what is also helpful is that Bonhoeffer also makes clear that Jesus calls in a way that you are equipped by that very call to answer the call. And yeah. so even though it's overwhelming, even though he uses this idea that, you know, to follow Christ is deny yourself, there's also this way in which, and I think he's echoing Kierkegaard here, right? That you kind of get it all back too in 
the um, being united with Christ. And so I think that's also very interesting. It makes me now wish we were reading Kierkegaard also, but mm-hmm. there you go. Yeah. And I think like to your point, Bonhoeffer, um, I think sometimes we, we might read Bonhoeffer's story as like this solitary heroic thing, but we, again, we have to recognize again that for him, Jesus Christ is to be found in what he called church community or in relationality or in place sharing and genuinely entering into solidarity with another. And um, so the the call to discipleship is yours and yours alone. There's no question that that's what he's saying. But when you respond to the call, you realize you are not alone mm-hmm. in responding to the call. And that's the, that's the supplication, you might say, of what it, why you can bear the cross of Christ mm-hmm. because you don't bear it alone. Um, and I, Bonhoeffer is next to Bart, my favorite theologian, hands down. And the reason is because whereas Bart helps me think um, in some pretty exciting ways for me, I'll put it that way. Um, Bonhoeffer has always I mean, I just frankly, Bonhoeffer has always preached the gospel to me whenever I read him. Sorry, I'm getting a little choked up even. Um, like even reading him again now, like I, I, I was just revisiting. I've been through discipleship, I don't know, 10 times. And even reading it now to prepare for seminar in, you know, the next half hour, I am just. Um, the reason Bonhoeffer continues to resonate is because I like he really, in his own words, became a Christian and believed it and obeyed what that meant for his life. And there's just something deeply um, uh, that deeply bears witness to me whenever I encounter Bonhoeffer. He's brilliant. No question. I mean, he wrote his dissertation by 21 and then he, in the German system, you have to write two to really get a doctorate. And he wrote a second one by the time he was 23 and Bart called his first one like a theological miracle like at 21 so he you know essentially bart's like there that's your guy uh and and yet he never he never felt like that meant that he should secure a position at berlin like he went and he was a youth pastor for crying out loud um Mm -hmm. like he he writes there's a story uh where he's he's this so he I mean, I talked about it a little bit in my lecture. He goes to these working class families on in a part of Berlin that he's not supposed to go to because he's a good bougie German, right? So he moves in with these families, essentially. And one day, uh, a boy shows up crying, devastated. Bonhoeffer takes him on his knee and asks him what's wrong. And his dog had died. Mr. Wolf, his dog had died. You know, typical thing for a kid. And Bonhoeffer in this letter to Betka is out. So he's writing this letter to Betka. And the first two paragraphs are like this theological polemic against Emil Brunner and how much of an idiot Brunner Brunner is. And he's just like ripping Emil Brunner to shreds. And then he goes into the story about Mr. Wolf. So context, here's this theologian who's brilliant. And then he said, he, he says up against the, because so the boy says, will I see my dog in heaven? And 
Bonhoeffer says in the middle of that, he replies by saying, up against this boy's question, I felt entirely small. Mm-hmm. So juxtapose those two things, right? You have this, he's doing what all German theologians do, which is attack their friends. And then <laughs> the boy sits on his lap and he doesn't have the words to say. And to me, that's Bonhoeffer. This is a guy who understood, like, I could be the German guy that I am and do everything, but really where theology matters, where it lands, is when a little boy sits on your lap and asks if he's going to see his dog again. And Bonhoeffer gives an unorthodox answer because the German orthodox answer is dogs don't get to go to heaven. They don't have souls. He says anything that, um, how does he put it? Uh, Whatever we hold in love, I believe God must hold with us. Oh. That's a great answer. Right? And it's so, like, it's utterly heterodox, and yet it's utterly orthodox because it tends to the living um, spirit of this boy, and it is stelvertretung. It's place sharing. And because of that, I can't read that story without going, like, that's that's the right thing. That's the Mm -hmm. theologically appropriate thing to say. That is the ministry of Christ in the moment of the boy sitting on his lap. That's, to me, that's why I, I can't. I can never move on from Bonhoeffer. I feel like he knew something of Jesus in like a good pietistic sort of way of putting it. He knew something of Jesus that I don't think a lot of folks in the 20th century did. And he had the audacity. I think that's the right word um, that you used earlier. He had the audacity to, to go wherever that was going to take him, mm-hmm. even if it took him to the hours. Mm-hmm. You know, as you were just talking, and I think in your lecture on Monday as well, I was struck this time by the similarities, not just between like, say, Bonhoeffer and Kierkegaard, Bonhoeffer and Luther, Erasmus, Augustine, but also Bonhoeffer and Aristotle um, in that, in the, and not, this is not just because I want to see Aristotle everywhere, but the way that friendship and relationship um, is so central to a transformed life. I mean, Aristotle spoke in the same way about the fact that, right, these, these mo- the, the complete and perfect friendships are very, very few and far between. We have a lot of instrumental friendships. Those don't last, don't, those don't do a whole lot for us intellectually, theologically, um, whatever. But these complete and perfect friendships, when they come along, they make you a more virtuous person. They make you want to be a better person. And it just struck me that that's, that's the best way to do theology as well. That sort of relational approach is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I, I'm glad that you see Aristotle connections with Bonhoeffer. I, I think that's what makes humanity so rich, quite honestly, is you've got Eric who's getting teary-eyed over a story about lived theology, and you've got somebody else who's going to be able to make a connection between a 20th century theologian and a Greek philosopher from way back when. So, I mean, that's fantastic. A connection mm-hmm. that Bonhoeffer himself would be upset by. That's I know, I know. I was just thinking he would be horrified that I just did that. <laughs> uh, well, I know that we typically ask Eric um, what he's listening to, but I'll just take a stab and see if there's anything on your nightstand before we get to what you're listening to. Yeah. Um, there isn't. I'm, I'm furiously trying to finish up uh, this major writing project that's been hanging over my head for way too long. So 
I'm not reading a whole lot right now beyond what I'm reading for class, but, um, but I could give some recommendations on what to like read about Bonhoeffer. Sure. Yes. There's actually a really good new book out um, called uh, at home with Bonhoeffer or something like that. But basically it's this, this woman whose husband is a, an American diplomat. So she ends up in Berlin um, and uh, somehow gets, they live close to the bon- So the Bonhoeffer house, like the family home has become kind of a museum of Bonhoeffer and she gets compelled to like learn as much as she can. And eventually she, she becomes a tour guide. And so she just writes about his life through being sort of an accidental Bonhoeffer person. It's a really good book. Um, cool. She does a really good job. So that would be the one I'd recommend. It's an easier read than some of the others. I mean, if you're cool. really at, uh, really ambitious, you could go after Eberhard Becker's biography, which is like 1,100 pages. So, Ooh. I feel like at home with Bonhoeffer pairs nicely with hiking with Nietzsche. Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> what? Um, yeah. what are you listening to to get you through your writing? Um, I actually, like when I write, I don't like to do music with words. So I listen to a ton of Olafur Arnold's is his name. He's a, I think he's Icelandic composer, but he kind of blends a little bit of like electronic music with strings. And it's really, he's really good. Fantastic. Well, Carrie, what are you um, reading? What's on your nightstand? I am now just going with a life is so stressful and terrible right now that I decided I'm setting aside anything more meaningful and reading Terry Pratchett Jingo, um, which actually does have connections. I think I mentioned last week, it's this story set in an alternate universe about war and people who like to make war as an excuse to cover other things up. It also has a whole lot of relevance in terms of the sorts of people that certain Westerners like to make war with. So it's got a lot of political ramifications, but it's just freaking hilarious. And it's good nighttime reading to just calm me down. So that's on my nightstand right now. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually in um, the 1930s, Germany and England still with the sisters. Oh, right. The saga of the Mitford family. So we're, I'm still making my way through this doorstopper of a biography of these six aristocratic sisters from England who, read, who led um, rather extraordinary lives. So there it is. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us, Eric. And you've been listening to... Focus at Bethel.